You are what you eat. I imagine you've heard this phrase before. Maybe it's helped you embrace the foods that connect you to family or to home. Or maybe it's shamed you for enjoying something unhealthy. The phrase comes from the 19th century French writer Jean-Anthelme Brihan Savarin, who famously said, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. It's true, the foods we eat and the foods we avoid say a lot about us. This can be good. It's the reason a bowl of bluebell ice cream connects me to my grandmother, who ate a scoop every night before bed. And it's the reason folks who eat keto or vegan or paleo find community and a sense of purpose with others who eat the same way. But this ability for food to shape our identity can hurt us as well. It can be used to craft a narrative about who or what is good. And in turn, it can disconnect us from the very foods that represent who we are. Does that sound a little bit extreme? Let's dive in and see. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology, where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you're hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes that you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can capture the full story behind the food in your hands. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook, or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from a hymn by Suzanne Tulin, using Christ's words in John chapter 6. Slow your breathing. And now, as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale, I am the bread of life. And as you exhale, Those who eat shall live forever. When the Spanish arrived in the New World, back in the 15th century, they were bothered by the lack of wheat. They believed that a person's health was determined by a balance of four humors— Basically, they believed that what goes into the body and what comes out of the body affects the temperature and liquids inside a person, which determines not just health, but personality and appearance, too. You could say these conquistadors believed that you are quite literally what you eat. And what they ate back home was a diet of wheat bread and wine. It was, of course, the diet of the Mediterranean, but it was also the diet of the Christian faith. 
Within the logic of the humors, it was the diet that made them civilized, fully human. So when the Spanish arrived to the Americas and realized that wheat didn't grow, they feared what a change in diet might do to their overall well-being. Would consuming an indigenous diet turn their Spanish bodies into indigenous ones? On the flip side, they wondered, could planting wheat and shifting the diets of the indigenous people make their bodies European? Now, the Spanish were not the first, nor the last, to subscribe to this logic of the humors. The theory was around at least a thousand years before them, and it continued a few hundred years after. Actually, it was the prevailing understanding of health up until the mid-19th century, when germ theory transformed our understanding of disease. Up until this point, most writing on diet and health focused on the moral and aesthetic qualities of foods. Based on the assumption that you are what you eat, these writings questioned what any given diet might say about the person who eats it. But soon after the advent of germ theory, the field of nutritional science emerged. Food could be studied at the material level. Its value could be quantified. Diet and health could be grounded in what science revealed to be true. Except the tendency to make moral judgments based on diet didn't go away. It just got coupled together with these new scientific claims. Nutritional scientists could now strengthen their moral claims about food and eating under the auspices of objectivity. But when we tether scientific claims to moral judgments, we are, well, tethering two separate things. We're making a statement about our own values under the guise of objective truth. Just like the Spanish who thought a diet of wheat could fix what they perceived as the problems of the new world— these nutritional scientists believed that the right kind of eating would make the right kind of people, which would create the right kind of world. The problems of society could be fixed, these scientists believed, if only everyone ate according to their nutritional recommendations. Charlotte Biltikoff is a critical nutritionist at the University of California, Davis. Her work bridges the fields of nutritional science and cultural studies, looking at the ways scientific findings are born of and used to reinforce cultural norms. She argues that the home economics movement of the late 19th and early 20th century attempted to create a better world by controlling the consumption habits of the lower and middle class. Instead of valuing food, Based on taste or tradition, home economists calculated and categorized food in terms of nutritional content. With this shift, they encouraged the poor to approach eating as a purely economic and utilitarian affair. Get the most calories for the least amount of money. For many immigrant workers, food was a point of connection to home and to family. For other lower-class laborers, good food was a reward for a hard day's work. But home economists saw this desire to enjoy food and the traditions around it as frivolous, a threat to the social order they wanted to create. The diet prescribed was advertised as the diet that could fix the world by turning those who eat it into good American citizens. 
It's kind of ironic, isn't it? People desire to eat according to taste and tradition because our food says something about who we are. And yet the fact that food is able to say something about who we are has been used again and again to try and change whoever does not fit the narrative of the dominant culture. The home economists detached food from the traditions and the stories behind it, but they held on to the maxim that you are what you eat, and they taught that you could eat your way to the white middle class status quo. Nutritional recommendations have changed a lot over the past century and a half. We're constantly learning new ways that our bodies metabolize proteins, fat, vitamins, probiotics, and carbs. For a while, low-fat eating was all the rage. Then came low-carb, followed by skepticism of dairy and grains. Fad diets like keto and Whole30 promise to save us from the dangers of processed foods. And superfoods like kale, quinoa, turmeric, and acai claim to provide nutrients missing in what's now the standard American diet. But one thing that's remained is a tendency to separate food from the traditions and stories behind it, while holding on to the idea that we can eat our way to the life or body or world we want to see. Beauty magazines, health blogs, and food advertisements continue to make veiled and not-so-veiled, claims about the goodness of eating a certain way. They use ever-changing research on health to make a claim with moral weight. Now hear me out. There is nothing wrong with pursuing health. We all want to feel our best. And I'm pretty grateful that we understand the impact of certain foods better than the conquistadors and home economists that came before us. But here is what we must remember. The field of nutrition is shaped both by science and culture, and it's limited in its ability to make objective recommendations about what we should eat. Our food can remind us who we are. It can tell stories about our grandparents, who taught us how to blend spices or smash plantains or roast peppers over an open flame. It can remind us of the ingenuity of our ancestors, who used every part of a pig or a chicken or a buffalo. Like the bread and the wine that we break on Sunday morning, it can connect us across time and space with those who share our faith. But our food can never tell us that we are bad or that we are good. Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. You are a beloved child of the Creator God, designed to delight in each bite you eat, as well as the stories and the food traditions that your community holds dear. I am the bread of life. Those who eat shall live forever. We'll get to our kitchen tip in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break to tell you more about Edible Theology. Edible Theology is an educational media project helping you connect the communion table to the kitchen table. We offer Bible studies, bread baking workshops, and a digital community to help you meet God through food. If you're looking for a simple way to take these weekly meditations a little bit further, then sign up for Edible Theology's email newsletter. You'll receive a short reflection, a recipe, 
and additional reading recommendations every Sunday. And the best part? It's free! Our weekly newsletter is the best way to keep up with new episodes of this podcast, as well as other events and offerings by Edible Theology. Plus, when you sign up, you'll receive a free liturgy for bread baking. It's kind of like a recipe in the form of an extended prayer. Sign up now on our website, www.edibletheology.com. Again, that's www.edibletheology.com. Our kitchen tip today is for those of you who want to broaden your understanding of healthy eating. It's quite possibly the easiest kitchen tip that I've offered so far. Broaden the voices you listen to that teach about health. If you're on Instagram, follow some accounts like The Cultural Dietitian or Black Nutritionist. Folks who break down dietary trends and reveal their impact on cultural foods. If you prefer to read food blogs or cookbooks, check out the offerings of Food Heaven and Kulina Health. With the help of these writers, nutritionists, and recipe developers, pay attention to the ways that different dietary trends divorce foods from their historic or cultural contexts, valuing them based on quantifiable nutrient counts rather than taste or tradition. I am a huge advocate of trying foods from other cultures, diversifying our diets while also learning the stories and practices of those who are different from us. A great way to ensure that our eating sparks curiosity and expands our palate, rather than appropriating the foods of others, is to listen to the stories behind these foods and to appreciate what they communicate about the people who rely on them day by day. And now to close, a prayer when eating bread. Holy God, you call yourself the bread of life. You say that when we eat of you, we cease to hunger or thirst. Shape us as we break this bread in sacred moments and mundane. Whenever we eat, make us like you. Teach us to rest and to value story, to delight in community and in the beauty of your diverse world. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by Edible Theology, where the communion table meets the dinner table. Learn more and sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Edible Theology Project. If you want to discuss this episode with other food-loving folks, then join our free community at community.edibletheology.com. We post discussion questions every Monday to keep the conversation going. A huge thank you to my assistant, Hannah Hargrave, and to our producers, Nick Thompson and Richard Clark at Area Code, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify, then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast, too.